Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Introvert Theater Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite films of all time, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. It's directed and written and produced by James Cameron and stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Edward Furlong, Robert Patrick, and Joe Morton. It's the sequel to 1984's The Terminator, and I thought briefly about tackling that film before this one, but T2, or Terminator 2, resonates more with me than the first one, for many reasons. I feel like the first film plays out more like a horror movie, and has a real unique quality to it tonally, while T2 kind of expands on the story with a significant increase in budget. Now, that's not to take away... That's not to take away from it. T2 is just a much bigger scale film, in comparison. I think the general consensus consensus is that with sequels, you run into a risk of losing focus on what matters most. And here, I feel T2 sort of accentuates the human aspect and importance of the survival of the human race. It's fun to compare and contrast the two films because of the similarities and differences they share. This is inevitable when dealing with time travel films, though, but this one at its core is about hope. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the plot, so for the uninitiated, the first film has a man named Kyle Reese, who's sent back to 1984 Los Angeles from 2029 to protect Sarah Connor. As it turns out, Sarah is to give birth to the leader of the Resistance against the machines. Kyle's future is set in the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust where a small group of men and women fight against Skynet, which is an artificial intelligence that becomes self-aware in 1997 and is given control of the United States nuclear missiles, thereby initiating the nuclear fire. Ironically, it is John Connor who sends Kyle back in time to ensure his birth and protect his mother from a machine called the Terminator, uh, who was sent back for the sole purpose of killing Sarah and, of course, prevent John's birth. Eventually, Kyle convinces Sarah he is from the future and spends a majority of that film protecting and ultimately fathering John. I know, I know. Time travel, right? <laughs> Kyle is killed by the Terminator, and Sarah destroys the machine in a compactor inside of a factory. She heads south to Mexico to try and outrun her future. So this leaves us with T2, which sees a Terminator sent back through time once again, this time to 1995, to kill uh, John, who is now about 11 or 12 years old living with foster parents, and is sort of a rebellious preteen in his own right. It's revealed that his biological mother, Sarah, unfortunately at some point was arrested and imprisoned at a mental hospital while trying to blow up a computer factory. At the hospital, she is mistreated, studied, and constantly asked about what we come to know as Judgment Day, which is the day that Skynet becomes self-aware. Now, Schwarzenegger returns as the Terminator, however... We find this time he's sent back to the past as a means to protect John, while Robert Patrick is introduced as a new form of Terminator, referred to as a T-1000. He's able to take the form of blades and stabbing weapons and can take the shape of anyone, making it easier for him to disguise himself thanks to his liquid metal form. Eventually, the two clash at various intervals throughout the film while either protecting John or springing Sarah from the mental hospital. Eventually, all three of our protagonists head south to meet with an old friend of Sarah's who has a cache of weapons 
as they take what they need and plan to head to Mexico. Sounds similar enough, right? But here's where this story takes an interesting turn, as Sarah, who by this point is informed of everything the Terminator knows about Skynet, falls asleep while carving something into a wooden table and finds herself in a dream. In the dream, she sees her younger self with a younger John at a park, when suddenly a bright light flashes in the sky, sending all the parents and their children to the ground, screaming in horror, as they burn to ashes. She awakens from this state and grabs a few guns and immediately drives away from the secluded camp in a vehicle, leaving the Terminator and John dumbfounded. John looks at the table and sees that she's carved something into it, and it's an inscription or a saying that states, The future is not set. He remembers she told him these words that were passed down onto her by Kyle, which were, The future is not set. There is no fate but what we make for ourselves. They immediately drive off as they figure she's out to assassinate Miles Dyson. Now, we find that Miles is an engineer working for Cyberdyne Systems, who is developing a microprocessor that is ultimately the precursor to Skynet. By taking him out, Skynet is never conceived or completed. And eventually, she comes up to his household and she shoots and injures him in front of his family, but she just can't go through with killing him. Then, the Terminator and John show up to help inform him of what he's on the verge of creating. Miles agrees to help them blow up Cyberdyne systems and destroy what we find were sort of remnants from the first film, which is basically a chipset and a hand that were dug up from Sarah's first encounter with the first Terminator in the first film, which those two things kind of form the basis of the microprocessor that Miles has been working on. Naturally, everything goes south, and the T-1000 is eventually destroyed by a grenade launcher and being dissolved in molten steel at a steel mill, which is where the final encounter takes place. The chip and the hand of the first Terminator are thrown in, as well as Arnold's Terminator. He states that he must be thrown into the molten steel as well to prevent any future use of his hard and or software. This naturally upsets John, but the Terminator knows there is no other way. He lowers He's lowered, actually, into the steel mill by Sarah. And from that point, John and Sarah just kind of set out into the night, down an endless road. And that's how the film ends. With that, I'd like to talk about some of the prevalent themes in this movie, starting with survivability and... Preservation of the Human Race. When our protagonists are heading south, they stop at a gas station. There are two children playing with toy guns, pointing them at one another, arguing over who shot first. John watches and looks to the Terminator, ter looks to the Terminator and asks, We're not going to make it, are we? People, I mean. It's in your nature to destroy yourselves, the Terminator coldly replies. And it's such a poignant scene and a bit of dialogue, but it's so important in the grand scheme of things and to this story's benefit because it comes at a point where these three characters are isolated and doing all they can to prevent the apocalypse, even if humans only passively go about their lives and their appreciation of it. Another fantastic scene is when Joe Morton as Miles is sitting at his table after being wounded with our protagonists as they explain the eventual consequences of completing the microprocessor that he's been working on. 
He feels sick to his stomach and believes every word of it when the Terminator cuts the skin off his forearm to reveal the sort of endoskeleton beneath and the, the fact that he is a product of Miles' life's work. He doesn't grasp the fact that he will become responsible for the deaths of millions. Sarah calls him out and says that men like him... Uh, says that basically men like him create death and destruction to make up for the fact that men cannot create a life and feel it grow inside of them the way that women can. And such a bold statement and has held a lot of water since then if you've paid any attention to the world we live in today. Now to skew a bit, I'd like to talk about the score by Brad Fidel. I thought his approach to scoring this film was unique in that the original film's score was comprised entirely of synthesizers, giving that film its unique cold sound. Where with Terminator 2, a lot of those themes created carry over, but they sound so much more alive and organic. He mentioned in an interview that mostly all the sounds in T2 are derived from actual instrumentation, such as brass players uh, warming up and having it highly distorted to become almost unrecognizable. And the reason I thought this was such a cool idea, because of because T2 by comparison is much more of a compassionate film that wants us to be hopeful. It has a lot of heart, and despite the steely, clanging sounds of the score at times, it feels more alive and maybe, I guess, symbiotic in, in this interaction between man and machine. I actually recently, within the last couple of years, got the score on vinyl, and I feel being able to listen to the isolated tracks really opens up the sounds, and it really kind of opens up sounds that may have been drowned out by the film's sound effects, such as gunshots and so on and so forth. It's really an incredible score and very much unlike anything else released since then. I've listened to it on many occasions, and each time I can directly put my finger on where the piece of music comes into play in the film. The mark of a great score, in my opinion, is when you can immediately visualize the respective scene just by hearing a few notes. Now, I feel the characters are as believable as they can be. I like Sarah's transition from when we first met her as an everyday working-class woman in the first film to the ultimate protector that is very conscious of the world around her and incredibly sharp. I like that she eventually softens up when she needs to comfort John and is accepting of her maternal role, even if at times John felt negated. James Cameron is really good at writing strong women without even really thinking twice about it, and quite honestly, that's how it should be. I like Miles as a character for being so accepting of his faults that haven't even come to pass yet. He's introduced to us as a family man who cares about his own wife and kid, and you'd never really think that someone like him could be responsible for the hellish landscape that eventually becomes to be known as um, the future. His priorities are never put to question when it comes time to break into Cyberdyne and destroy the relics of the past. He's simply a good person caught up in his work and that is willing to atone for his sins. The Terminator and T-1000 are similar in that they have their primary objectives to follow and are basically emotionless. What makes Schwarzenegger's Terminator so unique this go-round is that he tells John his processor allows for him to learn at some point in the film. 
so he gradually becomes more human as the movie progresses. Sarah even comments on on how it made sense that John of the future sent back a Terminator as a protector because it could never yell at or strike John as she watches them from afar. And he teaches the Terminator how to high-five. Though he could never fully comprehend human emotion, John even goes out of his way to explain why humans cry when the Terminator sees a tear roll down his face after a brief argument with his mom. So, why humanize this character? Well, the film ends with a camera focused on a dark highway and a dialogue by Sarah that goes, The unknown future rolls towards us. I, I face it for the first time with a sense of hope, because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. It's an indirect way of highlighting the qualities of the human race, and with the hope that maybe someday we'll all be able to look inward and really learn to value what everyone has to offer and respect and honor that. And that's primarily why I love this movie. I think James Cameron is a good person, and knowing his background before he became a filmmaker uh, makes me respect him more, and moments like this are so rarely committed to film. I remember trying to hide my tears <laughs> as the Terminator is lowered into the molten steel at the age of eight in the movie theater out of, out of, um, out of sheer embarrassment. But that's how impacting the film was to me, and even at a young age, it's um, it, it stuck with me ever since, and I, I look at the film now with a new set of eyes, and each time that ending hits me because it means something, and I appreciate the message. That said, I think this is a good place to wind down, and if you're listening and haven't seen this film, obviously I, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's... I think its themes leave a lot of room for positive discussions, and that alone warrants repeat viewings. Now, as for next week, I'd like to talk about a film based on a fairly significant children's book, and that is Where the Wild Things Are. Until then, uh, if you've made it this far, thanks for listening as always, and take care.